people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. something to remember. Don't move. It's the marshal, Wade. He's got a shotgun on you. Soon it would be 310. The glasses were empty. The guns were loaded. Soon a man, scared but brave, would run an outlaw gauntlet to put a prisoner on the gallows-bound train to Yuma. They're coming. Get the sheriff. Tell him to get as many deputies as he can. The sheriff's out of town. What? What do you mean he's out of town? He took a prisoner in Tucson. You know, when I was having supper at your house last night, I got to thinking maybe someday I'd like to have a wife. Must be real nice having a couple of boys like that to ride out with every morning. And then a woman like that every night. I told you before to shut up. Now you say just one more word and I'll cut you down now. Don't go through with it, dear. No, I've got to. Oh, Dan, I don't want a hero. I want you. You know, I never have been able to give you very much. And sometimes not even enough food for you and the boys. Well, maybe this will be something worth remembering. What are you saying? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. What? Get myself shot too? Also back in the booth is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. You look kind of skinny. Western Month continues with a look at Delmer Daves's 310 to Yuma. Released in 1957, the film tells the tale of two men, outlaw Ben Wade, played by Glenn Ford, and innocent bystander Dan Evans, played by Van Heflin. Their fates are intertwined after Dan witnesses Ben and his outfit robbing a stagecoach. We will be spoiling this film, the 2007 remake, and more as we go along. So if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen all the movies. Those 
two, three, ten movies, but all the movies, just all the movies, because you never know where we're going to go with this. So we will still be here when you come back after a hundred years of cinema. Rob, when was the first time you saw 310 to Yuma? And what did you think, sir? I don't believe I saw the the 50s version. I, I know that I saw the 2007 version in the theater and I liked it. But on rewatching it, there's a lot in there that I either blanked on or wasn't looking at it the way I was looking at it in my rewatch. So it's it was interesting to revisit it after these years. As for the title, it's one of those great titles of Westerns. And then also growing up in Detroit, and, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, about Elmore Leonard and also working at public radio, we used to come in from time to time. So it was always this thing where even though it was a Western, because of Leonard, there's always a tie back to the hometown in that way. You can just smell the Detroit in the story. It just reeks of uh, diesel exhaust, yes. And Jedediah, how about yourself? I didn't see the original Delmer Dave's film till right at the beginning of the pandemic when we were shut indoors and I just started consuming movies even more so than usual. And it was one that I'd never seen before, even though I was a big Elmore Leonard fan and I did catch the remake in theaters, but yeah, I hadn't seen it yet and was pretty taken by it. I liked it a lot and I've watched it a handful of times in the last few years. So I'm glad to come in and, and talk about it. Same as you guys. I watched the 2007 version first. I think I saw that at the Toronto International Film Festival when it was uh, there. must have been 2007. And then I went back and watched the original. And man, both of these movies have a lot going on. Like, this is not going to be one of those, for me anyway, remake bashings where it's just like, oh, all remakes suck, yada, yada. And it's not going to be one of those, you know, oh, the remake was fantastic. The first one was just so naive and innocent. Because both of these movies have a lot of great things going on. The remake, which, of course, we'll talk about later on, doesn't have that amazing Frankie Lane song at the beginning. And, of course, whenever I hear Frankie Lane singing, I immediately go to Blazing Saddles, where he just gives that powerhouse performance of, you know, he rode a Blazing Saddle. But this one, very serious song, talking about the 310 to Yuma, and uh, I thought it was great. I I really enjoy this one. And uh, Charles Lawton Jr. as the DP really bringing a lot to the table here. This movie looks fantastic. All these years later, it still looks great. And what a great cast for this, especially our two leads. And I'm going to try my absolute best to make sure I don't mess up who is Dan and who is Ben, because with these two three-letter names in here, I'm really struggling through the whole thing, thing, but at least when they talk about Ben, they usually say Ben Wade. So obviously very, very different people, both Glenn Ford and Ben Heflin and Glenn Ford looking amazing in this movie. He is so handsome in this one and uh, just really cuts a great portrait of a, a very dashing villain, I think. He does. That's quite a haircut for the time. So I'm not sure how historically accurate that is, but no, he looks great. No. I keep wanting to get myself one of those jean jackets and turn the collar up on it. That I don't think Elmore Leonard approved of his hat or most of the hats in it, but but I think he had to hand it to Glenn Ford that he looked great in it. I listened to the short story, and and I know Rob, you read it, and I'm sure Jedediah, you're familiar with it. 
it's a very, very short story. It is, I think it's like a half an hour long, if that. And it's pretty much the scene of them in the hotel room. And we'll definitely get to that part of the movie, but it was amazing how they took that one little thing. Cause I want to say it's like maybe three locations, four locations at the most, but it just moves along really fast. But it was really wild to see how um, the screenwriter was able to take that Elmore Leonard short story, Halstead Wells, the screenwriter was able to take that and add so much to it. Really did a great job with that. The big change for me in reading the short story is how, well, the names are different. The character names are completely different. That doesn't really mean much because I don't get the idea that Leonard or the screenwriter were writing the names with some sort of deeper context of what the names mean. But the thing I found interesting is the guy who plays the bounty hunter is he has daughters in the short story and that is changed to boys. And then it becomes this question of how you perform masculinity for your boys as a man. It seems to ride through both the original and the remake. So I thought that was a very interesting change and then using that as a depth to have this conversation about masculinity and ideas of the Western and masculinity and then masculinity in two different eras, 50 years apart, and how that maybe has changed a bit and family dynamic of what the expectation in the 50s was versus the expectation in the early aughts. Yeah, I love how bloodthirsty Van Heflin's kids are about constantly talking about given just a just any chance my dad is going to kill you <laughs> he is absolutely going to kill you and he could kill you at any time and he could kill anything he wants that that line gets thrown around awfully casually it's a little jarring one of the best changes that Halstead Wells the screenwriter brought to it was to make the Dan Evans character who is that's all I'm going to call him is Dan Evans because I don't remember what he's called in the short story. But in the short story, he's a lawman. He's a professional doing his job. And in the film, of course, he's a farmer. This is not his job. And he is not just a farmer, but a failing farmer who's desperate. The 2007 version also unpacks that even further and makes him a Civil War vet. and gives him an injury and there's some interesting ways that very densely packed kernel of an idea of a short story that Leonard wrote really has I think such a great little kernel that really could probably be unpacked a handful of other equally satisfying ways big fan of what Alstead Wells did is he a farmer or is he a rancher or is he both? Because he's talking about all of his cattle at the beginning. Yeah, I'm going to claim ignorance and say, <laughs> I'm not sure I can tell you. As someone who moved from the Midwest recently and now lives near this area, I will say that I think those two terms get interchanged out here between farmer and rancher. The only difference being is, do you have more cattle than you have plants? So I think that might be the thing. They talk up the skinny cattle more in the remake, but he definitely is talking about like, hey, because, yeah, especially when it comes to the rain, like the rains aren't coming. And towards the end of the movie, there's a sound of a thunderclap. 
And according to Stevie Nicks, thunder only happens when it's raining. So I don't know, like I need to check with like the meteorological situation here and find out if that's true. But he hears this thunderclap. His wife doesn't hear the thunderclap because he's just like blue skies ahead or dark skies ahead really is what he's looking for. He wants rain. He wants, you know, his, his land to come back and he thinks like everything's going to work out. Okay. Once he hears that thunderclap, but yeah, at the beginning of this movie, it's very, very, very dusty. Uh, you know, even to the point where he uses the phrase, let's wait for the dust to settle as he's seeing the robbery of this stagecoach by Glenn Ford, by Ben Wade and all of his men, and I agree with you guys. I don't know if the name changes really have anything to do with it. I think the most significant name possibly in the 57 version is Charlie Prince, just because Richard Jekyll is so much the heir to the Ben Wade empire, such as it is. I mean, he really doesn't have that much. It's just this band of outlaws, but he commands so much respect from his men that he can kill one of his own men. And then they like raise a glass to him because it's like, well, you know, Ben was protecting the whole outfit by killing off uh, this guy who got himself captured. So here's the Ben kind of thing. It's like the thing that's interesting about that name use to me is as the son of a Scottish immigrant, Bonnie Prince Charlie looms in Scottish lore. So I just hear Charlie Prince and think Bonnie Prince Charlie and the idea of the Jacobins in the uprising against the English in the 1700s. So that, as you do as a Scott, that and, of course, Sean Connery on TV 24 hours a day. It's just what happens. Charlie Prince is the only name, I think, from the short story from the Elmar Leonard that makes it to the screen. So it's the flashiest name, maybe. I don't know why uh, he didn't try harder with the other names. And I also feel in both versions, but especially the remake, that that character becomes flashy. <laughs> We'll get more into that later. But just to bring up Leonard a little bit, when I worked in public radio in Detroit, he would come in usually about once a year to the station for interviews and things like that. was always a very nice man, had great things to to share. And I remember asking him like how he got into in being a professional writer. And this would have been in that era in the early 50s when he was still having a day job. And he said that he worked for one of the ad agencies. I think it was either Campbell E. Wall or J. Walter Thompson, one of which that, and he was writing ad copy for Chevy, but he had this thing where he had a drawer in his desk and he would write on a yellow legal pad. And when the boss would come by, he'd just shut the door on the, on his desk and get back to the work he was supposed to be doing. And then he would take those pages home and type them up. And he started out with short stories, mostly Westerns. And I think he said that he stopped the day job when he sold Ombre as a novel, I think, which then became a film as well. So he said, yeah, he was like just writing every day and typing up the short stories and selling them to the, at the time you had the pulp magazines kind of. I can't imagine working at a day job and working on a side hustle at the same time. That just seems so evil and just not right. I mean, that undermines the American capitalistic system. I mean, I would never dream who'd heard of such things before. (laughs) Well, kind of along those lines. I mean, capitalism for me is so much at the heart of this movie, this whole thing of Dan trying to get along, trying to get ahead with his family. You know, like we said, he's not making it when it comes to the farming or the ranching. His cows are starving. His, His crops are not there. He's desperate for rain. And 
we really get this in the remake, but in this one, he's pretty desperate for money to the point where I need $200 if I'm going to join this posse. And the marshal um, uh, is just like, I can't pay you to join a posse. What do you, you know? This is your civic duty. And his sons are very much like, Dad, aren't you going to stop these guys? And he's like, Mm, no, he doesn't do the old Rick Blaine like I stick my no neck out for nobody kind of thing. But he's just like, Mm-mm, no, no, I'm 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 good, you know. <laughs> but once he, uh, once Mister Butterfield, the owner of the stagecoach, and the it sounds like the whole stagecoach line, once he offers up two hundred dollars, and it's just like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. He just suddenly changes from innocent bystander Dan to I'm now part of this posse with him. And, oh, I love Henry Jones, and he's so awesome in this, especially as the town drunk who $200 will go a long way paying for his drink. So, yeah, he'll join up as well, even though they tell him straight out, they're like, we don't want you, and but he's the only other sucker that stands up for 200 bucks. You were talking about the capitalism piece, and I was also seeing this, and I don't think we can ignore it, given the era, through the lens of like the red scare and communism in that the the ben wade gang is a gang they're an outfit they work together they're willing to sacrifice one of their own and yay to the dear leader who saved us and all this and then you have the rugged individual who will do it for money but also for an ideal he's very idealistic it's no someone has to stand up but yeah the money's good too but i i have this feeling of tension in here that feels like, I don't know if it was a, a deliberate writing in that way, or if it was just a zeitgeist. It was just like, that's just the way people are supposed to be these days. This post-World War II nuclear family, breadwinner aspect, but he's also a good American at the same time, kind of thing. I love the scene in the bar where Dan is confronting the Ben character. He's a distraction, basically, so that the posse can come up behind him and, and capture him. But yeah, it's an economics angle that he takes. Hey, you cost me money today. You owe me $2. <laughs> and, you know, what else could I pay you for? The kid's time and wearing out my horses. And how about $2 because you make me nervous? That's a great line and great, that sort of tension in, in Van Heflin's expression where he doesn't want to ask for money if he can zero in on but this is owed to me or he'll do it and he his eyes light up when he actually gets the money and then he keeps thinking of more things he can ask for and i like that insight into him quite a bit i love comparing that to you know he's asking so timidly for two dollars over and over again and then by the end of the movie You've got Ben Wade offering, well, how about $7,000 if you let me go? You know what? Let's just round it up. I, I count in tens. Let's do $10,000 if you let me go. Quite a bit of difference between those two numbers and just that their situations have forced them into these new roles as they're doing this. I mean, like I said, Dan is not, he is not the hero. He just wants to be left alone. He just wants his his economic dream to come true. But he is thrust into this. Once they capture Ben, after ben, 
I love how Ben Wade and his people just send all these guys on this wild goose chase. They come in to town after robbing robbing the stagecoach. They come in, they get their drinks. They're like, hey, where's the marshal? Oh, marshal's sleep. But okay, well, maybe you want to get him up because there was a robbery. Marshall gets all these guys together. They all ride out of town. And then there's Ben and his whole outfit just, oh, yeah, we basically run this town now. The only person that's still left here is uh, the town drunk. So, Good luck with that. And it's, you know, they come, uh, the posse comes riding up to Butterfield and, and, and Dan on his horse. And they're just like, Oh yeah, we're, we're about to, to, we heard that the stagecoach was robbed and Butterfield's like, yeah, it's my stagecoach, you idiot. The whole thing about them making sure that they get to the sheriff first so that they can sell him their story before the reality of what happened and what they did takes place i really like that aspect of the story that to me it's like starts to hinge on this question of of whose reality who's selling it the best and so when the sheriffs finally had these no he told me they they did what i think that's a good way to set things up from a plot standpoint like how do you get these guys into town and how do you get things moving as opposed to it just being like oh they're always on the run it's it allows for that aspect of they come into town and then there's the whole thing with the barmaid yeah who i kept thinking was going to come back because they have such a connection at that one part i mean felicia far i believe is the actress's name and you get that amazing close-up of her face with um glenn ford there also in frame but it's really her and her telling her like dreams and things and it's like okay yeah they must have something that's going to happen in this movie not really and i like how Glenn Ford, though, is like, oh, uh, did you happen to know this woman? How about this woman named Velvet? And he's talking about how he likes these bigger women and stuff and just laying it on thick, especially when uh, later on they get to Dan's house and he is flirting pretty good with uh, Van Heflin, with Dan Evans's wife, um, who does come back in the movie. Uh, Leora Dana comes back as Ms. Alice Evans. But yeah, we, I don't think we get too much more Felicia Farr in this, even though I think she's like third build on this. She was great. I really loved the, I love the scene. I love that's again, something that Halstead Wells brought to it. Not part of the short story, but Glenn Ford getting to repeat the lines to Van Heflin's wife that he said to Felicia Farr gives a lot of insight into who he is. But it, that whole connection that he had with Felicia Farr it didn't seem as as much as he's a player and has these lines, his go-to pick-up charming lines. It really struck me as a pretty, they seem to have a real connection that wasn't just a siesta long romance. It really strikes me as almost a sort of the same kind of romance that happens all the time in Michael Mann movies where Two people just see each other, have an instant connection, and they drop all the pretense of the games you play, and they just, what's so great going on in your life? Let's go have our own. Let's get this big romance on, right? Whatever James Conn's line is. But I was just thinking about how he is, is as much as we think that's where he would go. I think that it's not possible for him to go there because there needs to be this division between the domestic life and the outlaw life. And that the Dan character, 
with his with his kids and his wife and his ranch and all of that represents the ideal i guess of the era and this guy over here has to play against that as much as i feel that they did really well to set it up that we think oh this may pay off in the end so yeah that's the one thing that dan has over ben is the family and i don't know i mean does ben see that and say this is something that i want or is he content just having his gang and his uh kind of one-off life where he's just making money a little bit here a little bit there or a lot of it here a lot of it there there's part of me i think it's in here but it's definitely in the remake where i get the feeling that it's almost like he likes being this kind of interloper he likes going in there and stirring it up he likes getting them to question why did you sign up with this gang because i've got my own it's almost like they have two rival gangs in a certain way but one is one is more accepted than the other also in the remake i don't think it's so much in the 57 version but the russell crowe character the ben wade gets to complain not complain but he has a line about how you gotta be a bad man to keep this gang in check i am a bad guy (laughs) and there's a certain weariness to the way he says it that makes you think maybe he's not that satisfied with his life. And when you also in 1957 was Bud Bedecker's adaptation of The Tall T, another Elmore Leonard short story adaptation, this one with Randolph Scott. And, and in that one, the leader of the outlaw gang, not Richard Boone, complains about these guys that he's got to spend all his time with. He's got to constantly keep them in line. They're just, they're kind of troublemakers and they're low characters. And they're, so there's, I feel like maybe I'm conflating the two too much, but I have a sort of understanding of the Glenn Ford character, maybe just based on those two that, that maybe he's, he is tired of, these kind of this rough company that he has to keep all the time. I don't think he really expresses much desire in it, but maybe I'm just bringing the other Elmore Leonard stuff to it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I see that desire for the family or not. I definitely see him messing with people. He seems to just really get off on being. I mean, when we get to the scene in the the hotel room, which is in contention where they're about to get onto the train. I mean, the, it's amazing how much time we spend in that part of the movie, but I think it really works. But when he is offering that money to, uh, to, to Dan, there's a moment where he looks like he's Satan trying to make a bargain with somebody for their soul. He just plays it so cool. And when he's there laying on the, that bed and he's just offering that money and then he pulls his hat down over his head, over his eyes, I'm just like, oh, that's really nice. I mean, he looks like he is has satanic powers at that moment. I just get the feeling, and based on how he said that, if I ever get disappear, then my guys go to these places to look for me, that this isn't his first rodeo. I've been through this before. Someone else has done this to me in the past. He doesn't really talk about a past experience, but you get the feeling that there's this sort of, this just goes with the job. If I'm going to do this, this is what's going to happen. And some people will 
deal with my charms in a certain way and help me out the way I want them to. They'll bend to my will and others won't. And this just happens to be a case where this one doesn't seem to be going the way I want it to. He does mention at the end that he's been to Yuma before and he's broken out. It's like he's just fucking with people where he's just like, yeah, he could be like, okay, yeah, sure. Take me to Yuma knowing that he will break out. But instead he's, he, it, he acts like he's desperate to not get onto that train. He never panics. He's never like, oh, no, don't send me down there. But he's just so like, yeah, I'm going to do everything that I can to avoid this mess of having to break out again. But yeah, right at the end, he's just like, nah, I've broken out before, whatever. And it's like, you son of a bitch. You've been throwing this whole tantrum about not wanting to go. And yet, no, you, you you can go and you can get out whenever you want. It's almost like a revolving door for you. It's bad for business. It slows down his ability to. That's true. That's true. But do you have any sense about what year this is supposed to be? Because I saw Yuma prison didn't open up until 1876. And for him to have been there once before and broken out, I don't know how. It wasn't open that long. This definitely seems before 1900 to me, and not sure what point that's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be the 1880s. I would say probably around then. The other thing I find interesting about the film version, this version though, is Butterfield Stagecoach was an actual thing. It only lasted a few years, and I think it was even before this. Was it before the Civil War? I think it was in the 1850s or something, but it was the precursor of the Pony Express and getting stuff to San Francisco and California at the time. I knew a girl in San Francisco once. She had the greenest eyes. The stage line there connecting Bisbee and Contention, I do have a note that this is this makes for a trilogy of Elmore Leonard Bisbee to Contention stage line uh, stories, being 310 to Yuma, Valdez is Coming, and Ombre. And I put them in that order just because the stage line seems to be running all the time in 310 to Yuma. And it's the one that Burt Lancaster's Valdez works on in as shotgun and Valdez is coming. And then in Ombre, it's just shutting down and it's no longer running. And they do a, a special run of it for a whole lot of money. Don't know if it was used in other Elmore Leonard Western stories. I haven't read many, but it is interesting to me that he's got a little trilogy there. It's the uh, ELCU, the Elmer Leonard Cinematic Universe. The Butterfield Overland Mail, 1858 to 1861. Memphis, Tennessee, St. Louis to San Francisco, Fort Smith, Arkansas. New Mexico, Arizona, parts of Mexico, California. Yeah. So it was the precursor of the Postal Service's Western service, so. I know a little bit about that. I have a friend whose last name is Butterfield, and he told me it's like old family. So, Yeah, and Butterfield at the end of this, uh, when – because, I mean, we'll definitely talk about this more with the remake, this whole idea of hiring more people to try to uh, bolster the, the gang numbers. Um, but in this one, it's Butterfield coming in with, you know, oh, hey, yeah, I've got these guys to help out. And then when the guys realize that they're outnumbered, they're just like, yeah, no, uh, we're, we're done. And he's like, I'll give you all $50 a piece. And they're just like, Mm-mm, nope, I value my life way more than that. Off they go. And 
once uh, uh, Henry Jones's character, Alex Potter, I believe is his character's name, once he gets shot in the back and hanged in a horrible manner, and you just keep seeing this dead body hanging there, once that happens, he, uh, Butterfield's like, hey, listen, uh, Dan, you, you're off the hook. You don't have to do this anymore. He's just like, nope. By that point, and I think this does definitely play into the masculinity thing, by that point, that's when his wife is there. And that's when I think that even if he did want to say, okay, I'm done and let's cut this guy loose, I don't think that his pride would have let him because his wife is there. I think that makes such a big difference when she shows up in this story and she's able to, I mean, she gasps when she sees Henry Jones's body hanging there, but she makes it up those stairs and you get those amazing shots of the body hanging as she's coming up that stairwell. And when he opens up that hotel room door, you get that framing again of the body there as she's walking in. It's really powerful stuff. I think this is very, very well directed. That scene with his wife there at the end, it's almost like the Elmore Leonard version of the climax of The Crucible, the Arthur Miller play. Where he's going off to almost certain death, but she's got this, you can almost put the line in there, he's got his goodness back, or he's got his masculinity back, maybe in this one. He's back to the man I married. He's not this broken down defeated guy any longer yeah it, it rang it's it felt like that one to me and again that's when that thunderclap happens that he hears and that she says she didn't hear is when we have her riding into town and that's when that happens and you're like okay but again it almost feels biblical you know i'm talking about how glenn ford seems like the devil Having that thunderclap as the wife comes into town just feels like, okay, is this nature letting us know that things are going to work out all right? Is this the heavens letting us know? But I would not put it past the filmmakers when it comes to that. The thing that's interesting in that's in the short that is translated into the film, and it's in both actually, is the whole revenge plot with the brother showing up to get his revenge on the guy who was killed at the robbery. And through physical as well as conversational, look, no, we don't do it this way. We're doing it this way. We're putting him on a train. We're getting him into prison. We're not going to do this kind of frontier justice thing here. And I thought that the way that whole thing is staged and handled well because plays into this, again, layering in this why are we doing this? Yeah, the money, but we're doing it because we believe in these ideals. And it's this concept of, like you were saying, Jedediah, about when is the date and this kind of, this, whether historically accurate or in the minds of people who live back East going, when did the Old West go from wild to lawful or try to go legit? And I think that this is part of that kind of, thematic of we're not going to we have to do this so that we can have domesticity so that we can have property rights and children grow up and society because we can't have these frontier revenge you get that whole thing too of of ben wade saying after he shoots 
is it Bill Moon, I think it is, or Bob Moon, one of the Moon brothers, after he shoots this guy who's protecting the stagecoats, he's just like, where's this guy from? Get him back to his home turf. He deserves to be buried where he was born. He shouldn't be buried out here in the wilderness. And he almost makes his own bed by doing that because we have the whole funeral taking place in contention. And the brother of the slain man is, he's mad about his brother dying, of course. But he's also very, very mad that Butterfield didn't show up to the funeral because he's taking care of this Ben Wade thing. He's just like, hey, this was your employee. You should really have been at this funeral. Very few people showed up at this funeral. Even the preacher didn't show up at this funeral because all this fuckery is happening here in contention. Uh, This guy said a prayer. It was pretty good. It was all right. But this wasn't right. This is not right the way that this funeral went down. And that seems to be really more of his anger, even more than his brother dying. It's just the way that it was handled. This seems like a pretty classic Western to me. But the Howard Hawks reaction to this one and to High Noon as these sort of subversive Westerns that, you know, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get back to the the real old timey stuff. Yeah. So it's hard to imagine how it felt in the moment. Rob, you were talking about the whole Red Scare framing possibility. And yeah, I would be curious how it felt in 1957 to see this, this, the hero who's questioning his own worth and is tempted by the devil, Mike. He's not invulnerable. He's not, he does what he thinks is the right thing in the end for reasons that seem thematically accurate, but me watching it, it's got that great ballad 310 to Yuma in the opening. It's, this is a classic Western. It doesn't seem, it certainly predates new Hollywood, but it doesn't seem revisionist to me the way it apparently struck some. I'm curious as far as when did people start messing with the Western format? You know, High Noon definitely, you know, it stands out, especially the use of real time. But then, yes, again, with the Red Scare and the Blacklist and all these things, like you can read a lot into this movie. When did people start playing with the form? I mean, the Western had been around since the earliest days of cinema. You know, like what the great, uh, the, the great train robbery was one of the early examples of a feature film. And then you've got, all these years after, when did people start messing around with that form? Because, yeah, I can I can see – I don't have the same reaction of Howard Hawks, but I can see that they're playing with the form in this one. I don't necessarily consider this, like, typical black hat, white hat, Indians are going to get you type of thing. This is very, very much more, for me anyway, charged with, like, an economic overtone to it. Yeah, I don't really get that black hat, white hat, and I think that might be part of the reason why it works in a modern context is because the hero isn't so heroic that there is this kind of, why am I doing it? Why am I risking? What is it that I'm trying to accomplish as opposed to being so taken with an ideal, but then the ideals start to come in. You get the feeling that it was like he went down one path and then is either justifying his path through ideals or ideals start to take over a bit more and bend him more than the money does. And so I find that really interesting 
because I think if it was just he was just idealistic or if he was just in it for the money, those are two different stories. But I think when you can find a way to quilt them together or braid them together in an interesting way, it makes because I, it's not that black hat, white hat thing. All right, folks, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, you're going to hear from C. Courtney Joyner. He is a filmmaker and author, has many thoughts about Westerns, has written about those as well, quite a filmmaker unto himself. And then we'll hear from Greg Sutter, who was Elmore Leonard's longtime researcher. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. On her first assignment aboard Air Force One, a rookie Secret Service agent faces the ultimate test when terrorists hijack the plane and target the president, leading her into a relentless battle that could change the course of history. Air Force One Down is the latest heart-pounding action thriller to buy on Voodoo now. Rated R from Republic Pictures. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from C. Courtney Joyner, all about his thoughts on 310 to Yuma. Tell me your relationship with Westerns. I was always a movie kid, and I was one of those obnoxious. I could give you the credits to the ghost of Frankenstein when I was seven. I'm running around with my copies of Famous Monsters of Filmland and all that stuff. Actually, I think the first Western I really remember seeing on TV was High Noon, and I saw it because Lon Chaney was in it. So I had no idea what I was going to see, but also too in the, so we're talking about the mid to late sixties, there were still a lot of studio Western being made and John Wayne and all that type of stuff was still going on. And so I just, I guess, crept up on me because it was either horror or Westerns. And I kept finding so many cross, especially with actors, right? John Carradine and people like that. Oh my gosh, here he is in this John Ford movie. And then House of Frankenstein or Billy the Kid versus Dracula or whatever it's going to be. So that was it. And I just fell in love with the, with the genre, but of a specific kind. I know some guys are like completely devoted to the Republic B Westerns and the musical Westerns and Roy Rogers and Gina Autry and that stuff. I never really, I remember the Roy Rogers TV show because of the Jeep. But I never followed that path. I was always, what I ended up watching were things like Glenn Ford in this or Gary Cooper in that. And that was, that, I don't know why that, that captured me so much. And certainly uh, Randy Scott. Tell me about 310 to Yuma. When was the first time you saw that one and what did you think? Of course, it was on television. And it seemed to me it was like a Saturday afternoon, rainy, back when we lived in Philadelphia. So I was probably about 11 or 12. And I hadn't really started reading quote unquote adult novels or anything yet. Although I was buying up Conan paperbacks because of Frank Frazetta covers and things like that. But 310 to Yuba just struck me as being, it had this dark streak to it. And I was like, wow, this is weird. This is not a squeaky clean hero and. The villain is certainly way more interesting than just somebody walking into town wearing a black outfit. And I don't know, that one really stuck with me. And then when I saw that it was based on a story by Elmore Leonard, I think the first thing of Duchess I ever read was actually one of my favorite novels was Valdez's Coming, 
I think I read that when I was about 12 years old. And I was just like, whoa. Because when I went back and I was reading Zane Gray, I got interested in, in writing Westerns also. And I was reading the great classic guys, Bret Hart and all those people. Then I would turn around and go back to Elmore Leonard again. I just, I like the brevity of his speech and the way he would set things up visually. And everything just seemed so clean and crisp and also very modern. And uh, he always had that idea. And then when I got into the crime stories and everything, that was a whole other thing. But one of the things that always struck me when I would approach one of his short stories, whether it was 310 or The Captives, which became the movie The Tall T, the violence, it was usually just described very simply, but nobody was waiting to go out in the middle of the street and face off. And I love that stuff, but no, it's this guy's coming through the door. I'm blowing his head off because he's a threat. Let's get rid of him. And that was entirely different than, if you will, the kind of Westerns that you would find on the paperback racks. The whole tension of that short story of just those two men for so much of it is just keeps you on the edge of your seat. We well, see, isn't that part of the magic of what he did is here is this short story, this Western, and it takes place in a room in an old hotel and it's a conversation. And when Halstead Wells had to expand it for the movies for the Delmer Dave's film, was he was faced with the same challenge that Burke Kennedy was faced with when he turned the captive into the tall T for Bud Benneker. And some people have always said these preambles feel tacked on. I never really thought so. Bud's preamble to tall T, which I think is wonderful because where it goes directly to the Elmore Leonard thing is after Randy Scott loses his horse and all that stuff and they stop at the way station. And the owner's been killed and his kid's been killed and dumped into the well. And that's where the Elmore Leonard story starts. So we're just getting a little bit more. It's a lighter tone and everything with Randolph Scott losing his horse and betting and all, all of that stuff. But it was just, I think it's just so perfect because the West was a struggle. It wasn't gunfights every day and all this kind of stuff that sometimes we think of because of the movies. And here was something was completely natural and it happened. It was funny. And then, boom, not only are we faced with violence, we're faced with real heavy duty violence because they had killed a 10 year old boy. And, and that was where Elmore Leonard's story started. And I just thought that was a perfect lead in to the Elmore Leonard section. And with 310, Halstead Wells, who wrote the script, he was a big TV writer. And uh, what they did is, of course, so much of the conversation in the motel room is there, hotel, I should say, is there. But then they just took the information for those characters. They just dramatized it. We saw the farmer at home. We saw his wife. We saw Glenn Ford. With this whole thing with Felicia Farr is, whoa, maybe that's pretty adult stuff because all he does, he shows up and he screws her in the back room. That's mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I thought it was very smart too that they changed the lawman to the farmer character and just gave him more hesitation to even get involved in this and made it much more of a monetary thing for him. Oh, absolutely. Now, suddenly, there was this motivation for him to do this and not just, yes, I'm doing my duty and I'm wearing a badge and I'm supposed to go ahead and be this town savior. He didn't want to be in that room. 
but it was a way to save his ranch. And that was it. The only other person that really helps out is Henry Jones, the town drunk. That's right. And he gets killed for his trouble. And which is also too, that's an awfully vicious scene where they hang his corpse from the chandelier in the lobby and young Richard Jekyll being like this psychopath. But it's all also Charlie Lawton, who was, of course was a great DP at Columbia. Good bloody Lord. There are a couple of black and white Westerns I think are extraordinarily well photographed. 310 and also the Henry Hathaway movie Rawhide with Tyrone Power and Susan Hayward and Jack Elam shooting at the baby. I can understand why High Noon got so much approbation. And of course, Floyd Crosby shot it and won the Oscar for it. But when you see that these black and white exterior films, there's just something about them that really, when they're really well done, just hits you right between the eyes. And I think certainly the photography in 310, what was shot, what Death Valley, what was shot up in Lone Pine and all that stuff, ranks with my darling Clementine and what Ford was doing. It just incredible plus delmer daves that guy was so underrated and he was great i totally agree yeah yeah i have yet to see a bad delmer daves film i I love dark passage so much oh dark passage is great and and plus too his greenwriting career going all the way back to the 30s with the busby berkeley musicals and all that stuff and yeah it's just wonderful and i love dark passage pride of the marines which Warner Brothers promoted so badly, that poster, and it looks like a musical. And everybody's waving and smiling, and they're all locked arms, and you know, all that stuff. I saw that movie. I was a, a little kid, and that movie scared me because of that unbelievable scene where they're listening to the crabs on the beach, and they think they're snipers. And they're just with those giant crabs, and they're moving along in the sand. Yeah. Oh, man, that really, that scared me. So you said you talked with Mord Leonard. How did that come about? I had written a book because I got to know a lot of these guys when I was in college and stuff. And I was very lucky to get to know Sam Peckinpah. Warren Oates was just such a great person and he was wonderful. And I had assembled some interviews. So I decided to give it a shot to see if I could get them published. And a few had been in magazines and things, but some had not. McFarland decided to give me the deal. And so I started to gather people. And finally got Julie Adams and then Virginia Mayo, who was terrific. She was a saucy old dame, but she was great. Just loved her. But they, Ted Post was part of my original group of people. And I wanted somebody who really primarily came from television into features. I had Andy McLaughlin because I knew him. But once he sprung out of TV and the association with John Wayne and all that stuff, he really never looked back. Oh, he ended up, you know, career plummeted there for a brief period. But I do the thing with Ted Post, which was great. He couldn't have been nicer. And did you know he directed one of the roadshow versions of Dracula? No, I didn't know that. He did with Ray Walston as Renfield. Anyway, we have this fantastic, these fantastic sessions. And then at the last minute, he says, oh, I don't want it in the book. And they were getting ready to go to press and everything else. But my editor is a very nice lady said, look, can we get one real big person to do this? So I just wrote Elmore Leonard a letter introducing myself. He looked into what I was doing and I changed phone carriers. So I lost that message. I had it for years. Called me up and said, I love Westerns. I absolutely 
on board to help you any way that I can. And then we did the interview and he was so accommodating. And then later on, when I sent him the book and everything else, they promoted it with Greg Sutter. They promoted it on the website and everything. He just could not have been more generous to me. He was terrific. And I called him the day before the interview because we hadn't set a time. And I guess I interrupted his writing day. Anyway, he was a little, he was annoyed with me. And so the following day, though, he called me and he said, I'm shoveling the walk and then I'm going downstairs to the office. Hold on for a few minutes. I was like, okay. And he was very cheerful. He then read me an entire chapter from Djibouti. Well, and I kept thinking, this is being recorded. Sorry, do you really want? No. What do you think? What do you think? It was, yeah. And then we did the, we did the interview. It was wonderful. So what did he have to say about 310? I actually have a little thing right here. I had mentioned literally what we just talked about, uh, fleshing it out. And the whole thing was this interplay between these two characters in the uh, hotel room. And this is what he said. He said, oh, yes, definitely. That was the whole point of the short story. These two guys, one trying to bribe the other and the other guy won't take it because he's a man of his word against the outlaw and the outlaw can't really understand it. And he's all about anything that will get him out of this predicament. He's very slick, but he's a con man. And this poor, simple fellow understands that, but he almost falls for every one of his tricks, which is true. And he said, but he's confident because he knows that his guys are coming. He doesn't think this guy, meaning the the farmer is jinxed so that in the end of the first one, he ends up being the bad guy. And that is that great moment. Remember, and it's from the short story when he jumps him and tries to grab the shotgun and says, I had to try you. And the way it's done in the movie is perfect. And it's just the way it is in short story where it's like this panic. Van Heflin is not, he's not Clint Eastwood. He's not all cool, calm and collected. This is terrible. He's trying his best. And also the element that I think they added more, and it was in the short story, but added so much in the movie is because of Van Heflin's panic. I think that translates over to Glenn Ford's reactions to him because he very easily could accidentally pull both triggers just because he freaks out. And that ain't being the bravest guy in town or any of that stuff because Elmore Leonard he didn't believe in that. And there was that great moment in the tall T. And I, I just think it's just wonderful where it's Margaret Sullivan. Yeah. Is the leading lady. And she, she used to drink a little bit and she had a weird marriage to John Farrow. And the difference when you see her in those early MGM movies, like devil doll and that stuff. And the way she looks in the tall T it's pretty startling. You can tell that home life had been pretty rough on her but there is that incredible scene where randy scott keeps saying that she's beautiful and that she can seduce somebody and that's the whole thing to get skip Holmeyer into the cave and then i think it's still shocking randolph scott shoves that shotgun under his jaw and blows his head off it's whoa wait a minute it's incredible and, but the human element, that to me is always going to be Elmore Leonard. That human element is so prevalent 
again, violence isn't orchestrated. It happens in a split second and a lot of it's unintentional and things just get out of control. And that's what he was always putting down. And remember, and like 310 was published in 1953. So it was way out of bound of what normal Western, certainly pulp magazines, which is where all of his stuff was being published. Of course, that was more Western tales, roundup tales, Argosy, of course. And where I think the target, it seemed to me, for short fiction for so many of these writers really was the Saturday Evening Post. Because once you got there, of course, that's the Cavalry Trilogy and James Warner Bella and all that stuff. And that's where those guys came from. That was the big money and the big exposure. In this interview, Dutch said he was paid $90 for Pretend Yuma. And of course, Columbia, now, when they bought the, the short story, I think he was just when they didn't ask him to work on the script, but he had an odd opinion about screenwriting. But the thing was, he at least had that history there because, of course, Tall P was also Columbia Pictures. And he didn't tell the story, though, that I was just rewatching Ombre, which I think is just tremendous. And he sold the movie rights for $3,000, which was not bad money in those days. And where you could buy a house for $10,000. But they go and they see the film and he likes it very much because it is a very good movie. And then they finds out, his wife finds out how much Harriet, Frank, and Irving Ravage got for adapting that book. And of course, the dialogue is straight off the page. Now, they had an Academy Award, but they got over $300,000 for that work. This did not go very well. In the Leonard household, she was really pissed off. <laughs> You have got to, because of course, he was knocking on the door at Hollywood and it was happening, but in these kind of dribs and drabs. And he had already started with the, by the time of Ombre, he was already starting with the crime novels, but that was it. And he was very funny because he said, I said, okay, now it's into my contract. If you buy something from me, I have to write the script. And the next thing he sold and the screenplay he wrote was for the big bounce. With Lee Taylor Young, yes. And his quote was, I remember this. I have to look at the book. I followed up the man by writing the worst movie I've ever seen in my life until I saw the remake. But then they did a wonderful job on Valdez is coming. And I know now it's particularly correct to, to honor that movie because of Burt Lancaster's casting. But I think it's terrific. And it's also, this is also the thing with him. And it's, Certainly true in the Tall T and very true in 310 to Yuma. The endings are ambiguous, aren't they? When Glenn Ford and Van Heflin end up in the boxcar and all that stuff, and it is the ending from the story. And, he, and Van Heflin's got, why did you do this? Why aren't you afraid of prison and all that stuff? He goes, eh, I've broken out of you a couple of times. The end. And it's just, oh my gosh. And then wonderful and Valdez, of course, that fantastic freeze frame. Charlie Simon, he's screaming and yelling. Kill him and Hector Elizondo and all these guys are going, he's your woman. You kill him. And it's just that wide shot. And if we don't know who kills who, hopefully not Susan Clark. But I just love that. I always thought that was so cool to, especially for quote unquote, what you would consider action literature or pulp literature. And then 
he pulls a tonal, I would say it's not a tone shift, but it is a defying expectations approach to the endings. In fact, of course, he did that throughout the writing, but I always thought that was wonderful. And also, too, for everybody who's listening, and I'm yak yapping like a crazy man, Elmore Leonard never sat a horse in his life. He never, that was Greg Sutter. It was such a great guy. But that's the thing. He was his researcher. He just took from research. But that's the genius is he created all this authentic material. And yeah, he wasn't, he was some of these guys of ranches and all this at Louis L'Amour and those guys really adapted a Western lifestyle. Dutch and he's living outside of Detroit. I go back to Valdez is coming and Ombre. And so often I just think they're just gorgeously written books. And when we talk about the at the screen adaptations, remember with Ombre, the story is told from the point of view of the stagecoach driver, the Martin Balsam character in the movie. So when they wrote they even though all the lines were identical to what he put down on in the novel, that's a big that's a big shift. And of course, because they wanted a big movie star and they got one at Paul Newman. But that was there was some work there. So I don't think Really, until honestly, until even though he, he changed the race of the character, Quentin went after Rome Punch, and there there are a few. I have you ever seen a Life of Crime? It's really it's quite good. It was done for very limited money, but Jennifer Aniston and Tim Robbins and John Hawks, and it's a screen adaptation of The Switch. And remember that was the work that the guys got sued over for ruthless people because it was absolutely that plot and the switch happened first, but it's really good. And what's funny that you wouldn't think that somebody was so cinematic and had such a specific voice at times, it would be so difficult to adapt what he was doing, but there's some fantastic Elmore Leonard adaptations and then absolutely dreadful ones. His personal attitude about the movies is he was a huge movie fan, but his Hollywood experiences weren't always that positive and he could be critical of it. And I think there was that, maybe there's a hangover from that. And when they were doing Justified, Graham Yost, they, as they gave everybody a, a bracelet with, okay, what was it? Uh, W-E-D, what would Elmore do? And they all, and the writers all wore that thing. And so they were, I think, very protective of trying to keep that tone going, everything else. Because as if anybody read any of the care, like Gold Coast, I think, I believe Raylan Givens is in that, but he's like Sam Elliott. He's this old marshal with a big mustache and all this stuff. And he's a, ain't Tim Oliphant. But they still, they captured everything there. But I think there was an awful lot of work that had to be done but it had to be judicious and delicate because so much of it is it's dialogue and so much of it is also attitude of the characters to each other and everything else. That's what always made uh, it work. And I remember I was talking to Burke Kennedy and it was about the tall T and I said, man, these days you think he would get away with a character named Chink <laughs> and Henry Silva? He said, absolutely not. And that's the other thing. It's not just the racial stuff, but the, I think the attitudes uh, were so 
properly reflective of the times and the settings that he created, which, you know, that's unfortunately bad people exist and they say bad things and whatever, and people get upset about it. But it's look, this doesn't reflect the author. It reflects this character he's created. I think sometimes that gets a little muddy now. What are you working on these days? Actually, Tuesday, and this is, I'm so excited to be doing this because I knew the director very well. I'm doing the commentary on the 4K of Rolling Thunder. Oh, fantastic. And I'm doing it with Haywood Gould, the screenwriter. So I, and we're going to get through the whole Paul Schrader and all of that stuff. So I'm very happy about that. And then Mike Worth and I are doing a couple Bruce Lee movies. Is that how you pronounce it? Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee. So I'm also very pleased about that. And I'm still doing the going on camera and all of that. But for the actual screenwriting and everything, I'm getting ready to dive in to work on a rather massive documentary. Now that I've started writing those about uh, the flying tigers. Charlie Band wrote me back in for a little something that was a lot of fun to do. And that was like going home again. But you know how it is because of doing the the uh, commentaries and the the uh, docs and everything on these Blu-ray releases, I hadn't had a dramatic feature film made in almost seven years. Other stuff's gone on and I've published books and whatever, but you can get out of the rhythm of a professional area. And uh, fortunately, yeah, I'm getting back to it. So I'm very happy about that. So are you out on the socials or anything? Is there a good place for people to keep up with you? Oh yeah, I'm on Facebook and all that stuff. And so please, yeah, I don't have my own website anymore. I was too lazy to keep updating it. So I just, somebody uh, tags me on Facebook or something, then we're happy to fill them in. But yeah, yeah this is fun. Oh, I'll tell you one release this year for Kino Lorber. I was so pleased with is Henry Park and I did the commentary on Will Penny. I had my old friend, Mike Priest, who was the script supervisor on Will Penny, come in and do it. In fact, I'll tell you a quick Mike Priest story. Before Mike became such a successful episodic TV director, including directing the pilot to Dallas. So there you go. But he was a big time script supervisor. And he, he is very first thing he was, 18 years old, he worked for Anthony Mann as a kind of jumping in on Men in War with Robert Ryan and Aldo Ray. So he gets recommended to go over onto How the West Was Won. And his mom had been a script super and she had worked quite a bit with George Marshall. So they were old family friends. So he thought, oh, I'll go work for George Marshall. No, it was John Ford. So he walks on John Ford and he's there with a handkerchief hanging out of his mouth. And he looked at him and he said, Jesus Christ, I've got socks older than you. But he loved him. And Ford then recommended Mike to Henry Hathaway. And that led to Tom Grise. And Tom wanted Mike to work on Breakheart Pass, which actually was his last movie as a crypt super. And Mike had been doing it. He did True Grit and all this. Stuff. Anyway, they're up there in Colorado where they are. And Charles Bronson goes and he sees Mike. And he's like, what the hell are you doing here? I thought you were going to be Mr. TV Big Shot. And then Mike goes, no, Charlie, I just couldn't resist doing one more movie with you. Bullshit. <laughs> they go ahead. They make the movie and everything. And Mike goes back to Hollywood, actually goes to San Francisco because he had been working on the streets of San Francisco as a script supervisor. 
And now he was going to start actually directing episodes of the show. And he ended up doing like 25 or something. And when Martin is there, wishing everybody good luck on the new season and everything. And he goes over to Mike and he goes, wow, you've got some interesting friends. And Mike says, what do you mean? He says, Charles Bronson called me and told me what a good director you would be for this show. And I said, Mike, you didn't thank Charlie, did you? He said, absolutely not. That would have been the worst thing in the world I could have done because he would have felt embarrassed. Yep. There you go. <laughs> Mr. Joyner, thank you so much. This has been so great talking with you. I feel like all I've done is lather on too many uh, cans of Jolt Cola. Right up next, we're going to hear from Greg Sutter, Elmore Leonard's researcher and friend, and he's going to take us through quite a few of the adaptations of Elmore Leonard's work. Apologies for the sound quality. Did this on a phone rather than through Zoom. A little bit of dropout here and there, but I think it's going to be okay. I'm currently writing a, I don't call it a memoir, I call it a travelogue. Uh, the title I'm playing with now, the second best job in the world in Elmore Leonard research travel log because if you define travel log it's a series of adventures and places and people and things but you just string them together for 32 and a half years and but i started out without going into the whole every last detail of the origin story but i was interested in hard-boiled american fiction and film noir and I had a mentor, his name is Russell Ryan, Russell S. Ryan. He's in the Ypsilanti. He's got a lot of stories. Russ and I were like collectors, collecting the hard-boiled writers. For me, it started, of course, everybody starts with Chandler, and then you move to Hammett, and then you start getting, like, branching off Ross McDonald and John D. McDonald, although he's lesser so. And then some really obscure guys like Ronald Whitfield and Carol John Bailey, who was preceded really Hammett in many ways. And all those guys. And Cornell Woolrich is like the main interest of my Cornell Woolrich, also known as William Irish, who is the father of noir. And his best known work is Rear Window, which Hitchcock adapted. The Bride Wore Black, Phantom Lady, Deadline at Dawn, I Wouldn't Be in Your Shoes like really you know noir shit so russ and i were going to do a zine we talked about doing a zine and russ even mocked it up and we're going to call it noir because then i mean in the late 70s noir was not overused as it became overused with with the whole idea of neo-noir and all that but this was when noir just meant the either literate in hard-boiled fiction or in film noir, obviously had conventions of German expressionist lighting and French existential philosophy and American hard-boiled fiction. You throw all that together, you get a guy like Jules Dustin doing brute force. All these great noirs from the late 40s. We're going to do this thing and we go, what the hell are we going to write about? We got 
plow some ground, some fresh ground. So we decided Elmore Leonard is a local guy. And I had read 52 pickup, but then I had, by this time, I had read Unknown Man number 89, which was basically, in my view, there's like a, a sort of, there's actually five books that are set in Detroit in the 70s, but there are only three that are worth serious consideration. Five are 52 pickup, Swag, also known as Ryan's Rolls, Known Man, The Switch, and Touch which was not published until 86. It was about the guy with the stigmata played by uh, Skeet Ulrich in the movie. Paul Schrader, a Michigan guy, directed that. Ruff goes, pay close attention to please such and such. And so the bad guy is chasing Raymond Gidry. The bad guy is chasing Jack Ryan down Main Street in Rochester. And where I live, above the ice cream store. And they blew out the windows in Mitzelfeld's department store and then cast below my apartment. So I, I so it's weird, but I took it aside. I thought, this is totally cool. Then the girl lived at the Lysander apartments where we used to go to smoke dope with the professor. So it's a the connection. But then we said, let's do it. And so I looked him up. He was in the book. And you know, we went over there. And I told him I was in the library a lot, and that was that. And now I did a monthly Detroit feature on him in 1980, which was really one of the first features of that sort about him. Because he, prior to 1980, he, local people knew him because he had been in advertising at Campbell Ewald. And David Davies, automotive magazine and current driver before that, he was his, was his pal. And, you know, all these ad guys. They knew him and he was known. And of course, he got some publicity periodically when things clicked, like in 57, when Yuva and Tall Peak came out, Randolph Scott and Felicia Farr both came to Detroit on the junket. So then after the monthly Detroit thing came out, six months later, I happened to be at the office in the dine building and when he called, and said, hey, you want to do some research for me on stress? And stress is not the condition. Stress is an acronym for, in Detroit at that time, early 70s, for Stop the Robberies of Joystage Streets. What it was essentially was like a granny squad. It was a decoy squad. And they were responsible for multiple deaths on their watch as they would, they would do decoy work. And so on, and, and Dutch would used that background in Split Images, which was the book after City Primeval. So that's how it all came about. Just sort of serendipity, just right place, right time. Stuck in his hat that I was eager to I'd like doing research with Peggy, and I liked digging. That's my. It's fun. So was that your primary responsibility for the time that you two were friends? There was no formality to it. It was just like, um, we're going on a new one and I need to know how to break into a car. So go downtown and talk to the cop. So I had a police sergeant teach me how to break into a car and then how to start it with the tools and all that. So it's just the, just little, I mean. I would always always something different. Go to keep your own Missouri. I did. I went 
drove down to Nashville to go to this show with George Jones and Merle Haggard. This was like in 87, summer 87. And Dutch goes, hey, when you're down there, just why don't you just drive over to Cape Girardeau, Missouri and check it out. He was 200 miles away. Of course, I drove right over there after the concert. And they had a flood wall. And it's the only inland cape in the United States. But he had heard that. And so that's, that was the only trigger to do this thing, which became the secondary location in Killshot, where Wayne and Carmen go when they're in the witness protection program. And then a couple of weeks later, he goes, hey, let's go to Cape Girardeau. So we jump in. He had a stop at the time. We jump in there and drove six, 700 miles to Cape Girardeau. So there was never anything. It was just whatever he needed at the moment. Or if he wanted to be there firsthand, always helped. He's nothing like doing your own research, but he didn't wait around there, sit in the chair and write, not be interrupted by all the, in the old days before computers, like your databases were super cheap and available and Google and all that. But you had to go from the library to find stuff. And you better have a lot of dimes for the uh, microfilm machine. And they better not be on a toner. And you better be able to find a librarian to put in you. You're just a pain in the ass. And sit there with your iPhone and copy the entire book or anything. You didn't have those tools. You had to struggle. I remember going up the Lansing to find an article. So I was doing this well, photography research for La Brava. Uh, State, of, State of Michigan Library has it. That was like that. You'd go from place to place. Can you tell me, how was his relationship to the movies? Because he had so many of his stories and books made into films. What was that relationship like with Hollywood? Basically, he was like a kid when they made the first two Westerns in the 50s. The tall and she can Obviously, they just bought the story. and. But they, I think that Bert Kennedy, did, I don't know if the relationship, that's on the tall tee. I don't know if, which Courtney knows a lot about. But his relationship then, not no real relationship with Ombre. And then after that, he wrote Valdez and it sold, but Lancaster wasn't ready to do it until he did it in 70. This was like 67. And so. Then they, 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 he wanted to write, he wanted to maybe break into speedwriting or at least make some money because there wasn't tons of money coming in. So he just, so he got the, he got, he tried to get the job to to do Big Bounce, but they said no. But then he did get the job to write the Moonshine War. So he wrote that screenplay. And then he started writing them and we made Valdez, which was pretty good, really. It, has, it kept his ending, which was like not the expected ending of Ultra. Spoiler alert. I mean, it was not a, it was not like a big, a brutal ending. It was like a soft landing. You're just going to get busted, mister. Not a bloodbath ending, which they might have tried to do with Lancaster. But then, so then he does Joe Kidd. And this is like for John Sturgis and Eastwood. So this is, so he's out there all the time. 
but he, that's what he really gets his idea about about Hollywood. What it, I mean, he learns about Hollywood in all of its contours and structures. His agent was H.M. Swanson. He was a legendary agent who they, he was the guy that, that, that told Fitzgerald, his client, to name the great Gatsby. He's the guy that, that had Chandler Woolridge, all these writers, million writers. He came from the, from the East Key. He was the editor of College Schuler magazine and came out here to, to represent like literary writers there, you know, trying to make some money, break into, when you had basically a lot of them were out here that Swati represented. And he was seeing from the Indian perspective, the, the producers from Sturgis, Eastwood, what Eastwood wanted, all that stuff. And that was fun. Not really. And then they totally screwed up his story. And, and then they had that stupid trade ending. And I think he realized at that point that you can't win. Then he was buddies with the great late Walter Mirish, who I got to know a little bit. But Walter, did, and he did Mr. Majestic. And that was a pretty good movie. He didn't really check for it that much. And then he novelized it. See, Mr. Majestic is not really a novel. It's a novelization, which you do after the movie, you, after the film. You write it up, that's considered a novelization, but they call it a novel, obviously. And so that was, okay. So then after that, there was a drought. There was nothing. He had switched at this point to crime novels and he was writing them set in Detroit. And, and but he was still working on getting, he was even trying to get one of his own things produced with a partner named Tom Brank and that for the hunted and that never really came to fruition. But then the next thing to happen then, so this is bringing it up to 74 and then by 80, he, there were various attempts. There was action. He did a, a big treatment for something called the Hawkbill gang, which was for Michael Keane and Sean Connery and all kinds of things were written, but nothing might mean that he was attempting to, in 40 lakhs, his last one, his own was national general had that and some, I don't know exactly what happened when national general, general ended up out of the picture, but nothing really happening. And then in 1981, then Peckinpah is going to do shitty primeval as hang tough, look at screenplay by a war letter. And that was very exciting. I was involved in location scouting with Peck and Paw. And then the writer strike, and then the thing went up to turn around, and Peck and Paw was not very reliable. And he just felt muddy and weirdness, and so that never happened. And then the next thing on the hit parade was Dick. And Dick had great promise. Another Elmore Leonard screenplay, but Burt Reynolds was starring in it. And he was really the character. He could play a, a Florida boy, very convincingly, kind of the guy that Stick was. And, but he was also directing. And you go, okay, all right. This, we'll just have to wait and see. It you can't interfere, really. 
you're the writer, because you're pretty low on the totem pole if you're the writer. So it was an unmitigated disaster because Reynolds, George Fiegel was in the two and Candace Bergen, but Fiegel and Burrells, they would do these exchanges and they would cut to reaction shots. And it was just really horrible. And then at the end, they brought in this other writer. I think his name was Joseph Stenson. And he put in what Dutch described the machine guns and scorpion. I mean, they put the scorpion type scene. And, and, and Dutch told Reynolds, wrote him a letter, very frank letter, told him what he thought. And Reynolds played it on the studio. That So it was it. But a Dutch sort of box office poison, the term was used at the time for a while. Then there were things like, that he did with Walter. He did Desperado. He wrote that from his story. Duel McCall, he wrote that. He wrote Desperado. And, but that's really nothing to really... In that, he, he wrote High Noon Part 2 with Lee Majors and Cornell Roberts. Just a horrible thing for the money. He, but he's not commercially minded guy. He took the work. Ask him to do the work, he'll do it. So then after, well, you know, after, okay, so then Desperano, and then, and then in, in 89, Abel Ferrar did Cat Chaser, but they took that away. They screwed that movie up. There's some big article on, you can find somewhere on the, on the internet about that whole debacle. And that was Peter Weller in that. And the big guy that was in, was, oh yeah, they, and this, to it, which was started off with a Sydney who met, going to make it, and then ended up being a TV movie. And that, well, that was the Marky Post and Kiwi Smith. And that was just bad. It was just not, you know, it's such a great book, clips. And, you know, just, so, so, Babel Ferrars thing that didn't make night, just didn't really resonate. And like you say, there's something like very evil happened. He turned the outcome. And then there was like some split, some bikers, I think they were made a split images movie, which with Gregory Harrison playing Robbie Daniels. And that, that was really bad. And then Glenn Ford, oh, you know, it's just later. Yeah. No, we're in the nineties. Okay. So Glenn Ford was in, let's see, Escape from Five Shadows in, which they called Border Shootout. And he had to be possibly fossilized at that point. I don't think I've ever seen that one. This clips. After years of just getting it together, Danny DeVito and Derry and everything else, and TriStar and then MGM and all that, Nick finally settled down and they make, and Pulp Fiction comes out for Jersey Films. And when he put these together, Jersey does get shorty. And they bring in Scott Frank, who at this point didn't really have a track record, but was a super fan. And, and so DeVito is Jersey. That's his company, along with Stacey Scher and Michael Schamberg. And they, and then Tarantino is the one that said to Travolta, you got to do this. And then and to sell Travolta, Rodney showed rushes from Pulp Fiction. And then, then people, everybody goes, yeah. He's back. He's not doing those talking baby movies anymore. That's what Dutch said. Good. John Travolta? So it took a while. But then 
he had several different Venusophili. And for a minute, a hot minute, Danny DeVito was being considered for the Chili Palmer part, which, you know, sounds absurd, but true. But then, of course, he thought better of that too. So then, then you got Tarantino doing Jackie Brown and, and basically Duchess Baber in a sense, because it just really brought the book forward. And at the same time, it gave Tarantino room to do his great writing and style that, that, that really made that such a different movie in his canon, but really good Elmore Leonard movie. And that, that came out Christmas 97. And, but that 97 year, you had Black Bandit Saber River with Tom Selleck. And that was good. That was considered one of TNT's top Westerns because Selleck was really golden in the Western base at that time. Then you had Cuts came out, Trader's Cut with Bridget Fonda and Christopher Walken was in that and Jermaine Gilbert. And Tom Lerald is really good in that. He just places, there used to be this right-wing religious group in political group in Detroit called Breakthrough. And the head of Breakthrough was this guy named Donald Lopsinger. He would fit in perfectly in today's political environment. And so Dutch was parodying him in Todd. Finally, Weller got a chance to direct. So he directed Elmore Leonard's Gold Coast. That was the title. And, and, and what's his name from CSI, Caruso. And, but the gal from the Vegas CSI, Marge, to get Saber, Tud, Gold Coast. Oh, yeah. And Pronto came out that year too. Yeah, that's right. Because Showtime had these two movies and Pronto comes out with Peter Falk and James the Gross playing Raylan Given and one of the wrong hat. That was five movies coming out in 97. Yeah, 98, he had Out of Sight, which they brought out in the summer. They killed the box office by not bringing it out in the fall. But another movie, and I think it was Fight Club or one of some movie like that was not ready or they had to, they had to bump out of sight into this block. Well, it's like, but they recognized the mistake and they brought it back in the fall for a critical run. But the damage is already done in terms of the box office. But, but that, but Scott Frank, again, is writing in this time with greater confidence. Not that he didn't have confidence to get shorty, but it's his first real, he did Little Lee and Kate and he didn't do other movies. And now it's, now it's got, it's like super big. He's doing this much mature, this, the Hammett thing, Spade, Monsieur, and my friend, she's terrible, Spade. It's on, forget which channel it's on, but, you know, the, so that was that. And then Barry Santo comes back and now he's going to do this with his name, the writer, the Homeland writer, Alice Ganza. So with Alice Ganza writing Maximum Bob for ABC Summer Replacement in 98, and that was just, it was already an over-the-top story about a hard-sensing judge that married a mermaid who channels a dead, delayed girl. It's a with bunch of swamp creatures thrown in. Real heart of the uh, Florida canon of, of Elmore Leonard swamp people. And it's just that they tried to go over the top. 
And, and it's just, some people liked it. Bo Bridges was in it. It's just too bizarre to really catch on in any way. But the summer replaced them when they still had such a thing, ABC. So that was that. And then what happened next? Which is God awful. The remake of, re, the remake of uh, Be Cool, not Be Cool. Uh, no, the remake of uh, The Big Bounce first, which, which was just, Dutch always said that the first one was the second worst movie ever made. And then on this one, he said, now I found the worst. But it really isn't even the worst movie because at least you can look at, I hope it doesn't sound too sexist, but at least you can look at Sarah Foster in a bikini. At least, at least you can watch Surfer. But it, but it was totally irrelevant because this is that if you know anything about Michigan vacationing, the Port Austin in the thumb is where people go. And that's where this one was set. Now, the original, they, saw, they shot it in Stockton for that part of the course. But to take this story to Hawaii, to Oahu, because they got a tax break, it, it was so bad that Steve Bing apologized to Dutch at the premiere. The horrors continue with the remake of, not the remake, but the sequel to Get Charlie Be Cool, which F. Gary Gray directed. And it just, everything that Dutch told Barry Sonnefeld, actually, it was only one thing Dutch told Barry was, if somebody says something funny, don't cut away to, to a reaction shot. They let the audience figure it out. The character that's saying this thing is not a stand-up comedian. It's not looking for a laugh. It, they're just naturally funny. Gary didn't believe that or it's whatever. He brought in Cedric the Entertainer, who Dutch always said would never be in one of, never in, be in one of his pictures. Andre 3000, he brought in. And these guys just were having the best time in just sinking this movie. And, and Vince Vaughn played this part that Dutch wrote specifically for Samuel Jackson. Because he wrote everything for like basically Sam Jackson or Harry Dean Stanton. Depending on the character, he had these go-to guys. And, and Vince Vaughn just, uh, it's just a well, just totally foolish character. And it just, when you watch some type of movie, you just know this is a goof. Whereas Be Cool could have just been like, Right in the same vein as Get Shorty. See, Dutch had a, a country rock band. Not really country rock. They call themselves ACDC meets Patsy Klein, but Stone Coyote. It's a real band. And he's going to add somebody. They got the star in Be Cool. They got this woman named, I believe her name was Christine Million. And she was really a good singer. I was at one of on the set for one of one of the scenes. She wasn't Taylor Swift, let's put it that way. She wasn't somebody that the whole world's gonna take notice of. That's how Dutch wrote it. And they it and then Harold Smith was in it and I don't even want to go any further. It was just horrible. All right, so then the next one in line was a tragedy and that was kill shot. And Harvey Weinstein took that with him when he started his own company, when he started the Weinstein Company after leaving Merrimack. That was a property that he took with him. 
the origin is kind of murky, but at one point it was suggested that De Niro was going to play the Blackbird and Tarantino himself would play Richie Nick and Tony Scott would direct. That was one of those pipe dreams that, you know, that you, you read about. None of it ever happens. Hardy has it now. And supposedly it's going to be Quentin Tarantino present. He's not going to do anything, but it's going to put his monitor on it. So they bring in like a, a really, a really good director, John Madden, like the football guy. Yeah. So they bring in John Madden and on this guy that was supposedly a good guy, Lefty Marani was the screenwriter, but the idea was to to show this couple in like Detroit or thereabouts. And so they end up like, and they shoot all the studio stuff in Toronto. And when they, when they end up shooting it in Ontario, they go to Cape Girardeau to shoot that segment there. And the marshal there, the, the sexist U.S. marshal, was played by Betty Knoxville. And that's where the problems really started with this movie, because once they went, once they started all that, and all the people in Cape Girardeau, like the couch people and Bye Bye Birdie or somebody, they're all excited they're going to shoot there. And they did. And get the footage back and they test it and nobody likes Johnny Knoxville. So they kill. Eventually, Hardy interferes in this movie to a great degree. He even had his own cut at one point, overriding the director. And in the end, they brought in Anthony Mangillow and Sidney Pollard, who both died within a year of fixing on this film. They brought them in for a rewrite. And there's, and then they got, they, they shot a bunch of stuff in Ontario. Again, some street shots that look like Ontario because if you've ever been over there, it's the houses look more British than American in some respects. And the end result, I think it was like Mickey Rourke and Joe Gordon Levitt and Diane Lane and Dom Jane were the principals. And the ending that they did, see, the ending depends. And that's why Bruce Willis was being a real a hole about the whole thing. You shouldn't talk ill of him, but she, because he wanted it, but he, he wanted to be the, the, he wanted to be the good guy in the end, in the end, the guy that like takes the day or the woman. So the whole idea of a kill shot is that the woman is smarter than the man and, and he, and the man is cool with that, but not when you were Bruce Willis at his pinnacle of box office success. So they. I mean, they, so now we've got Tom Jane, who is hardly a uh, e. Bruce Willis, although he did his work that was like of a certain type that maybe qualified him. But Jane and, and Lane at the end, and they share the kill shot. And it's, oh, man, just give it to the woman. But they, they couldn't. But that's, and that's why Dutch would always say, the book is on the shelf. Nobody. You want to know what I wrote? Read the book. Don't necessarily see the movie. But then the next debacle is really painful. And that's Freaky Deaky. Because Freaky Deaky really is 
the best story. And I started off, Richard Brooks was going to do it at one point, and that never happened. And Charlie Mantho, Walter Mantho's son, wanted to do it. And for years and years, and I'm not going to knock Charlie. I'm just going to say that it just didn't come off. I'll just give you the last one and then say what I was going to say. It's like the last one is Life, life of Crime. That was with Jennifer Aniston and what's his name? Again, that was from the modern family. And, and anyway, that was, that was written, that was set in the late seventies. It was in, and so I forget if they updated the time frame, but it's got it in kinetic and, but it just, but if you only move the basic essence of an Elmore Leonard novel, the locations, the, the time period, you can't update things necessarily. There's certain things that you could update perhaps, but not, that doesn't, it, it's not like I'm knocking what Dan did. There was just, it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't do what Justified did. Now Justified is, there's bookends are Get Shorty and Justified. Because Justified completely Graham Yosin and his writers, they, and the, all the producers and all the actors, everybody totally got what, what Elmore Leonard was all about. And they put it on, they put it on the tube and they did it for six years. And it was pretty, there was one day in my book, there was one night we were sitting there watching it. And he turns to me and he goes, did I write that? Because it was that good because they were that, that, that good at Mimic. The takeaway is the book's on the shelf. Help them out. Encourage if they want to invite you to the shed. Because you have a chick out of that, but don't expect too much. And then if you get rewarded, like I said, you just basically go back to all the movies from Tall T310, all those movies. We're big Hollywood type movies. Hollywood, but in not necessarily this late studio period, but they were all good movies. You would see them and you'd go, yeah, it's a good movie. You flawed, like Joe Kid a little bit. And yeah, and the big boss was horrible, horrible. But Lee Taylor Young, who is also, she's from uh, West Bluefield, Lee Taylor Young was the, the late. Ryan O'Neill, that should have been the first tip-off. I remember when this movie came out, we got the Michigan Catholic in the house, and this was a C. This was a condemned movie, and I've never been able to track that down again, the record, to see that again. But then you get into movies in, in the sort of the writer-producer era, and they can be really great, get short of Jackie Brown and on site, or they can... Just fail to ignite, which is a nice way of saying they suck. Imagine anybody really copying Get Shorty and Justified to really create that Elmore Leonard universe. Because if you don't do it correctly, it just falls flat. And then you go, why should I read this guy? He, but movie suck. Well, the books are great. It was the expression, lightning in the bottle to really be able to reproduce what that, that intangible thing that that Elmore Letter does. And a lot of times people will think it's plot, but it's not plot. It's character and dialogue. And that makes it difficult for people because they're all plot oriented. I don't blame them. You've got to have a plot, but he lets the characters move things. 
and there's a lot of internal dialogue. So it's hard to breath. Can I have constant voiceovers or something? Who knows? Probably cheaper just to let me rob the damn thing. See which way road, Evan? Might be we're headed to Bisbee. Hands up. 22 robberies, over $400,000 in losses. Y'all notice he didn't mention any of the lives I've taken. We will have Ben Wade convicted and hanged, and we will pay to make it happen. I'll come. Where are we headed? Taking it in a 310 to Yuma day after tomorrow. Shouldn't have told him that. Relax, friend. Now if we get separated, I know where to meet up. It's a killer, Daniel. There's someone I have the decency to bring him to justice. I want to come with you. Well, you can't. What are you doing out here, Dan? You got a family to protect. Don't talk to me like you know me way, way in French. I told you to stay home. I left home. You turn around right now. Your boy ain't protecting you. He's following me. You say one more word, I'll cut you down right here. I like this side of you, Dan. You're so sure that your crew's coming to get you? They're lost without him. Like a pack of dogs without a master. Where'd they take him? I don't know. Get me out of here! Ah! Sure as God's vengeance, they're coming. Coming this way, I've seen him. There's gonna be 30, 40 more guns out there now. You in there? Sorry, mister, but I'm not gonna die here today. It's just you left, Dan. It's just you and your boy. This town's gonna burn! Call him off. Why should I? Because you're not all bad. Yes, I am. You just remember that your old man walked Ben Wade to that station when nobody else would. We are back and we're talking about 310 to Yuma. And now I didn't realize that this was remade twice. Um, I tried my best. Rob, thank you so much for letting me know about the film Arctic Blue from 1993, directed by Peter Masterson, starring Rutger Hauer and a lot of other people. Dylan Walsh, who I didn't even recognize him in this, but uh I tried watching this movie and it was, it was rough, man. It was real rough. Yeah. Let's talk about this one before we get into the remake. So I didn't know about this either until I was looking at the Wikipedia entry for 310 to Yuma and it said, oh, it was loosely adapted as this. This feels like a cable movie or it feels like something back in the golden age of just put it on video. That's what it feels like. Uh, the setting, Arctic Blue, it's Alaska. I think there's certain things that are interesting about this adaptation, but there's certain things that are really lacking. The Dan Evans character, he works for oil company, and he surveys their land and makes sure everything, nobody's stealing or hunting the wildlife and things like that. And Rooker Hauer and his gang come in, and they're poachers, and he stops them, and then they go on to 
meet these other hunters and end up killing those hunters and disabling their truck instead of taking their horses. They shoot their truck. And then they go into town and tell the sheriff, oh, there's some bad stuff happening. It's like, oh, okay, cool. So uh, then it happens that they, instead of a train, have to get the Rooker Hauer character to Fairbanks from this little small village in Alaska. And it just happens that the Dan Evans character, who's not called Dan Evans, I can't remember his name, happens to be a pilot because you need to be able to fly an airplane up there. So he's going to take him in this little plane and then Rooker Hauer crashes the plane. And then (laughs) he just turns off the engine. And I'm like, can't you restart the engine? Like what? Why are we crashing now? Yeah, and now they're out in the middle of fucking nowhere. They're horribly underdressed for the weather. They have no provisions, but somehow manage to walk back to society after fighting with each other in the middle of the wilderness and not dying of exposure. And then the gang is, of course, trying to get Rooker Hauer back. So it's a mess. You guys watch much classier movies than me. I didn't find this one hard to swallow at all. This was, yeah, it's a little cheap and rough looking, but yeah, I thought it was all right. I did think that Elmore Leonard himself used the 310 to Yuma formula over and over in a lot of his, a lot of his like made for TV movies, like the sequel to. High Noon Part 2, The Return of Will Kane, and also for his Desperado TV movie series that did not become a TV show the way he wanted, but did get a series of movies out of those. They did that a lot, that 310 to Yuma formula. So it's been remade, you could say, many times, but of course, once explicitly. I don't think plagiarizing yourself is is too bad. I mean, especially once you find those themes you want to to run with it. But I was amazed at just again to go back to how short the short story is compared to what they built on either side of it, and what a, what a good job they did that. And then when it came to the uh, 2007 uh, remake, which was uh, adapted this time by Michael Brandt and Derek Haas, and really. What they adapted was a little bit of Elmer Leonard, but a lot of Halstead Wells, because like we said, there's not a lot of the Leonard in this. I think he, he colors a lot. He gives us a very major scene and sets up some characters, but Wells and Brandt did a really good job, I think, expanding out some of the themes. And then like you were saying, Rob, 50 years later, how can we handle this same story? I don't think that it was. Russell Crowe in this, he is in prime Russell Crowe mode. He looks and is acting fantastic. Christian Bale, I love Christian Bale. He's a fantastic actor. He's no looker, though, and I think he kind of fits well with the Van Heflin character as far as Van Heflin's kind of an odd-looking character, and Bale is not doing anything to help his looks. He looks so scraggly and skinny, and just his hair looks greasy this whole time, and meanwhile, we set up Ben Wade, Russell Crowe character, to be much more dashing, and he's got that cool little bowler hat, and he's I like how they make him this... uh artist character, how he's drawing the first time you see him, he's drawing this uh, hawk in a tree, and we get all these drawings that he's doing through this. He's very, very contemplative. So I can see him 
being, you know, I was talking about how like, is Glenn Ford tired of the life? Would he want the family? Those kind of things. I can see Russell Crowe's Ben Wade really wanting that life now. I think he's just like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay with a change because he, he seems too artistic to just be a bank robber, if that makes sense. He's the intellectual evil. He's someone who enjoys the finer things. He's not in the dirt like his gang members. So that leads to this real stratification of he's the leader, but he does not dress as well as Charlie Prince in here. He is a dandy, if there ever was a dandy. And especially in this period, people would have been like, what is the circus in town? What's going on? Because he is definitely dandying it up, which to me, like I said, eventually when we get into the story, a little leads to a little bit of this homoerotic content where I start to feel like Charlie Prince is pissed off that Dan Evans is trying to move in on his man. That is exactly what I was thinking too. And and when we get to some of the gunplay, it feels much more like phallus interpretations rather than just guns here. But yeah, um, Ben Foster, Ben Foster's a fucking hero, man. I mean, that guy, he is an amazing actor. Every time I have seen him when he is fully on and, and able to do what he needs to do with the role, he just takes it over and does such a great job. I'm, like uh, i mean hell or high water i think i remember seeing, seeing him back in like six feet under he was fantastic in and then just everything since then whenever i see him show up i'm like oh this guy all right we're, we're in for a treat now even shitty movies like pandorum or um i wouldn't say it's shitty but that remake of the mechanic i thought he did a great great job in that so i was really really happy to see him show up in this and i think he he it, the movie's in danger of being stolen by him just because he puts on such a, a an out there performance that I find him fascinating every single time he's on screen. Yeah, no, I think he totally steals that movie, and it is a pretty packed cast. And I'm not not bagging on anybody else, but he's the performance you remember from the film for sure. No, you're right. This whole cast is amazing. Kevin Durand in here, I love when he shows up. Peter Fonda as the, I guess, super bloodthirsty Pinkerton guy, like who's kind of a, a new addition to this. He's kind of the Butterfield character, but also not at the same time. And then you get people like um, Alan Tudyk in here, even like... Uh, Luke uh, Wilson shows up later on in the movie. You're just like, wow, where did this come from? But again, amazing performances. But Kevin Durand for me has always just been such a, a great actor. And I, I love his end. I think that the scene of his death is probably one of the best things. And I think that's what made me fall in love with this movie when I saw it in 2007, just him tormenting Ben Wade. And then we kind of like, Go around the campfire, everybody's asleep, but you hear this noise, and then you find out that it's Russell Crowe <laughs> killing Kevin Durant's character with his little fork, just over and over and over, just stabbing this guy. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. I also think that shift from Butterfield to Pinkerton is a big one. And is one that those who understand the history of who the Pinkertons were, both as a detective agency, but definitely as hired muscle later, 
would be in the what, up into the twenties and the, the strikes oh, and the all of strike that breakers. Yeah. yeah, really well to, to play into that. The other thing that's interesting with this, and you can tell this is what fifty years on, and race does a little bit for you too, is that there are other races of people in the West. There's natives. There's Chinese railroad workers. There's all of those things. So it expands the the universe a little bit in that way. I also think with it being 50 years on, it doesn't really, the the original doesn't really deal too much with World War II per se, or war, we were in the war, is code. This being 07, by then, we have a lot of guys coming back who are going over and over again to Iraq and Afghanistan. They're coming back wounded. They context it as civil war. But there's part of me that goes, okay, that plus a year later, you've got like the economic crash that happens with the housing and all of the other stuff that happens in 08, 09, 10, that lends this, when I look at it now, through this lens of just recent history, like talking like last 15 years, you see a lot of these elements of how the, the war on terrorism, the idealism, money running the show. And who are we really fighting for? What is the cause I'm really up against? And that the Bale character in here is much more about everybody sees me as a fucking loser. My wife sees me as a loser. My kids see me as a loser. I fucking probably see myself as a loser. Everybody's looking at me like I suck. And I need to find a way to to die with dignity or to redeem myself and this is how i redeem it. it's not even about the fucking money at this point it's about i just need to be redeemed and to me that's like the strongest piece in the bale character which at times almost for me almost tips over into absurdity it almost feels too much that they're pushing that key down on the keyboard and the but i think it works for him to give him something to fight with yeah i think the the remake, one other thing it does is put put Dan and Ben on more of equal terms. They're both people who are having their livelihoods threatened by the new world. Ben is a struggling farmer or rancher, but he's, he's a small businessman. And there's he's small business in the land of big business. And Ben is, he's, He's out there, his freedom is being encroached upon by industrialization and the shrinking of the West very much uh, by technology and by, yeah, the railroad and telegraphs and things like that. And so I do like that the, the remake gives them more in common that way. They're both people who are they're seeing them they don't see a place for themselves in the future and i agree that the remake is definitely worthwhile and and probably better than a lot of people thought it was going to be when you talk about remaking a classic i think it's pretty good though the ending i gotta say the ending i don't understand it it yanks me out of the movie every time i think they were reaching for something a little poetic that didn't quite translate enough for me. I don't know. How'd you guys feel about the ending of the remake? 
Well, the ending, the ending works for me. Um, but I, it, b- before we even talk about the ending, I want to say that there's another villain in this movie, um, which is the wealthy landowner, where he's like, hey, you know, it's not that Dan is waiting for rain this time. His land is dry and his cattle are dying and his crops are dying because he can't get the water that is on the wealthy landowner's land. So when he finally says, okay, I'll do it. And, and again, it's Butterfield is like, Hey, yeah, no obligation. Um, he's like, no, 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 I I'm obligated, but this is what I want in return. And he lists this whole thing of demands, including something that I don't think the Butterfield guy could actually provide, which is water rights for my land and all of this stuff for my son. Like the son is an active participant in this one. Like how I talked about how, you know, the wife comes back in the first one. In this one, it is the son who is constantly there. And yeah, to your point, Rob, he thinks that his dad is a total fuck up. And really, if anything, he some of the looks that he gives to Ben Wade, it's just like, oh man, I wish this guy was my dad. He seems to know what's going on. This other guy, this this Civil War flunky who, you know, got his uh, leg shut off, you know, like what what a what a jerk this guy is. But my, you know, I, I wish my dad was like Ben Wade, basically is what he's saying. And then, yeah, like towards the end of the movie, this whole thing of, but, but I love, you know, because there's, there's, there's some of this in the original where it's the two of them going to the train and it's like, you know, Hey, look out over here. And there's a little bit of like life saving from one to the other type of thing. But not nearly to the point of what we have in 2007 with when they're running across the roofs together, Ben and, and Dan. And they're basically like Sundance and Butch running around. And it's it so brought me back to one of my favorite movies of all time, L.A. Confidential, when you've got, uh, you know, him, Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce at the end of that movie. And they're just like, OK, that's it. We got to kick some ass. This movie is very similar where we've got now Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. OK, we got to go kick some ass. And they're running around and doing all this stuff. And then it just becomes this whole thing of like, he gets him on the train on his own and then. Christian Bale ends up getting shot because of what you were saying, Rob, this whole idea of the jealousy of the Ben Foster character, Charlie Prince is just like, no, 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 uh, you can't have him. I'm going to take you out, Christian Bale, and shoots him four times in the chest. Talk about overkill. Shoots him four times, and yet he's still alive a little bit somehow. I don't know exactly how, but this whole thing of like, all right, I'm, I'm going to take you out, and then it becomes – Russell Crowe taking out not only Charlie Prince, but his entire gang. It's like he just wipes the, the earth of the, these guys. And then gets on the train. Yeah. Yeah. Willingly. And, willingly. Yeah. And he's got to protect the sun because the sun comes over. It's just like, hey, you know, dad, da, 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 da. And he's like, basically, he's protecting the sun by killing all the rest of the gang as well. And kind of setting things right on his own. Like the, the authorities don't set things right. The criminal himself is the one that sets things right. There's a lot to unpack in that whole thing. And I don't think I got enough time to sit here and theorize as to what the hell that ending means in the context of 2007. But like I say, there's part of me that feels it has some aspect to do with you fought a war that was unwinnable but you will get our respect because you went out in a blaze of glory 
blaze of glory you went and did your service good man you have been redeemed even though the cause was fucked that's basically what i get on the end it's like the cause it was pointless so there was no real value but look at all the bloodshed that was caused in it in terms of them becoming like butch and sundance that to me i i and i'd have to go back and rewatch it again but i remember the rewatch going how did this turn like how did they become partners in a way there was part of me that didn't i don't know if it gelled well enough for me in that way to for that to take that turn so that that's the thing about that ending as for the kid wrote in my notes here i go if this was done 20 years earlier in the late 80s that kid would have been christian slater that's what i wrote because he has this kind of look in this manner to him that it's like christian slater a la late 80s totally yeah he's that will scarlet from um the robin hood remake you know he has as much right being there as that will scarlet character did i wanted to point out that I think Scott Frank, when he adapted Out of Sight and put in that coda with Samuel L. Jackson riding in the car with On the Way to Prison, I got to think that, that was a nod to the original 310 to Yuma and his saying that he'd broken out before, which, of course, was not in the Elmore Leonard short story. It was the Halstead Wells thing, but I had that in my notes. I wanted to say it before I forgot. When he brings up that he broke out of that prison much earlier in this one than he does. I mean, the, yeah, the ends of these movies are very interesting to, to play them side by side and just to see the pacing of them. How long does that hotel bedroom scene last? What do they do while they're in there? How does that information get doled out to us? What's happening outside of that room? And then, yeah, what happens at the very end as they're on that long, you know, I think it's half a mile they have to walk from the hotel to the train. But that becomes this, you know, incredible length for them to go from one place to the other as they have all these people here. And I think this one definitely plays a lot more with the idea of uh, Charlie Prince comes in and is just like, hey, all you townspeople, you want a quick $200? You need to kill this guy in order for us to give you that. But he basically turns all of the town against, you know, talking about like the uh, uh, high noon type of thing. It's like, not only are people not helping, but they are actively working against you now because the, the bad guy is offering all this money to turn the tables on poor uh, Dan Evans, as he's trying to get this guy across to the point where Charlie Prince is like, no, no, don't shoot at the guy in the black hat, shoot at the other guy. <laughs> and he's like he ends up having to kill people in town who are trying to murder the wrong person and it just becomes this incredible bloodbath at the end and i i really appreciate that i, I yeah i i know that there are some troublesome things in here but yeah I, I i find this remake really really compelling the aspect you were talking about with the train and the technology and all of that stuff that feels like once upon a time in the west was you did on the show before and that whole thing about the train's going to come through town and we got to, that's the thing that I have always appreciated about the Westerns or the Japanese equivalent samurai film or something like that, that although it's set in this period concept, it's really talking about themes of modernity. It's really talking about what we're dealing with now. It's the whole idea of to borrow a line from a friend of mine, who's a rapper obscuring to reveal that by obscuring it, 
we can actually have a conversation about these things in a way that if we tried to have it head on, it would just be too polemic and people would just tune out. We tried to do it in a modern context. Yeah, this whole thing of the uh, Bob Moon character, the brother of the slain person, they kind of break that into two things. They break that into the mysterious Native Americans that are uh, murdering them at night. You get all these pot shots coming off, so they're against an outside force that is not Ben's gang. They're this whole other force. You know, I talked about how there's a new villain in town, which is the wealthy landowner. Now you also have, as you're saying, Rob, the idea of the natives. So they're taking all these shots and that helps uh, Ben get away. Eventually he gets away and then he gets caught by, you're talking about the railroad. He gets caught by the guy who is running the railroad through this territory who. Ben happened to kill his brother before. So now we have this whole torture scene, which is kind of wild the way that they're torturing him. It looks like with electricity. Am I getting this right? It sounds, it looks like they have a little zapper box. They're doing a little Martin Riggs on this guy. And it's like, okay, is that right? Like, have we gone too far because he killed your brother? Is it okay to torture this man? And then they have to basically rescue Ben from his tormentors and have to end up they don't they don't kill these uh railroad men but they definitely fuck them up as far as like blasting this uh uh new hole and 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 causing this whole cave in and all this stuff and then when you get the uh charlie coming through again i think he murders everybody because he sees ben's guns um on luke wilson's um uh holster so he's just like oh yeah no you messed with my friend i'm going to take everybody out here and just murder everyone i've always reminded of there's this piece of Harlan's seven words you can't say, in which he was talking about changing out the cliches in Westerns from kill to fuck, and the kind of fun you can have with that. Fucking and killing. You got fucking and killing. I say, let's change the words around. If language is our servant, let's put this on bitch to work. Let's go fucking killing and killing fucking for about a month and a half. Just long enough to confuse us a little about which one we really fear and want, all right? Fucking and killing, just anywhere you see them. Movies, the movies would be great. Better get down off the horse, Sheriff. We're fixing to fuck you now. What's this? Mass fucker still on the loose? Man fucks three, self. No, I think we got him now. He made his first big mistake. He fucked a cop. <laughs> yeah, he's a cop fucker now. Every cop in the state will be looking for him. Okay, thank you, Dan. The thing that's funny is that sometimes in Westerns, when I watch them now, it almost seems if these guys could just fuck as opposed to <laughs> maybe they could straighten themselves out and figure out what their real problem is had that the last time i rewatched the wild bunch i just realized that it's just two guys you should probably just end up in bed together just then everybody would be okay that's where most of the short story takes place is in a hotel room so maybe you're right there's just a lot of unspoken anger at each other and resentment and i have no idea it just seems there's something else going on there guys like I say, it's interesting to me the aspects of how masculinity and, you know, what the value of what I'm doing is, because I get the feeling that 
in the first one, like I said, yeah, there's money, but there's also this, we have to do the right thing. This man has to go to jail for what he did. We get that in the remake, but really what the key motivator is, is the individual aspect in that Bale's character really wants this redemption, like feels he needs it. He deserves it in some way. He needs this respect that has been taken away from him that is just alive in the son character. The the son's just constantly telling him what a loser he is throughout the entire film. (laughs) As opposed to the first version 50 years earlier, where it's my dad will kill you. The first chance he gets, he's going to kill you because he can do that. Which reminds me of, I was going to say this earlier, like on the schoolyard when you're a little kid and it's, oh yeah, my dad can beat up your dad kind of thing. So it's interesting to see that shift where it moves from this place of the how masculinity shifts, but also I would say the interaction between the wife and the husband, where you definitely get this sort of husband over over everyone in the 57, and then it, I won't say it shifts 180, but there's more of kind of a understanding between the two of them. And it's a very kind of modern context, I think, for their relationship that they have, that Bale's character has with his wife. In which it seems like they consult with each other and it's, you should do this, or I thought we talked about this, or we have to handle this aspect together as opposed to going, no, I'm in charge. And then he's trying to, he's trying almost to reinstitute this old model, but he knows that he's, he can't do it. It's just not possible because he can't provide and he's crippled and he's basically just completely disrespected by everyone down the line. Yeah, I see this movie as being such a threat to uh, Dan's masculinity. I mean, from the, I mean, we always talk about like, you know, if you're missing an arm, you're missing a leg, it's kind of like a stand in for castration anxiety, definitely with the leg in this one. He even gets shot in the foot at one point, and they're like, oh, good thing he shot you in that foot instead of the other one, because got no feeling in that one, or you might not even have it there. That whole thing. And then when, when Ben, emasculates Dan because this happens in the original version, this whole thing of like Ben is there in manacles and he can't really eat dinner too well, but they don't show it nearly as rough as they do in the 2000 version in the 57, they hand the plate over and he's cutting the meat and Glenn Ford says something like, Oh yeah, stay away from that gristle or that fat or whatever. And it's just like, all right, you know, that's a little demeaning. But in this one where Bale gets up and comes over and is cutting the meat in front of him and he starts to hassle him, it just feels much more emasculating to see this man cutting meat for the other man, just very much in that domesticated role. And it feels like this whole time, Ben is just this threat to Dan's masculinity. And at the end, when they team up, it really feels like they are there to save Dan's masculinity, that it is like, okay, if you want to walk away from this as, or limp away as a man, I will team up with you. That's what it feels like when we're talking about the motivation of the two characters to team up at the end. It, for me, it feels like we are going to make sure that Dan is, is seen as a man before he gets killed at the very end. Like they want him to have everything back again. That was my interpretation of it. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. The question is, is, do you think that the Russell Crowe character has grown enough 
to appreciate this character to go, you know what? I'm willing to put myself at risk to do that for you. I feel that. And there's part of me that's, I don't understand why he would do it. It's, I understand why it's there, but it's, I want to make it as hard as I can to get you to get me to that train. Why am I going <laughs> to run with you over rooftops? Why am I going to shoot my own guys? Yeah, that's the part that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't, couldn't swallow. And I've watched it a few times. I think I've seen it three or four times. And like the movie, I do. But every time I get there, I, I kind of, it's really not until he, he gets on the train that I go, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. I'm taken out of the movie again, but, but I do think the remake is pretty good. Really peak Russell Crowe and peak Christian Bale. And I think it'll survive, survive well. Ben Foster, of course, I think will probably have a career to, to be thought back upon. And I think this one will stand out as one of his, one of his defining roles. So it's funny. You talk, I like that you brought up the, you brought up Hell or High Water earlier. Ben Foster, because there's something that the remake of 310 to Yuma does better, I think, than Hell or High Water, which is another movie that I like quite a bit. But there's one scene in Hell or High Water that just makes me really angry. And it's the scene where their brothers are robbing the bank and the townspeople show turn out to try to stop them. And I think... In my mind, it was probably supposed to be a throwback sort of reference to end of the James Gang and the Northfield, Minnesota raid, where the town, you know, shot them up and stood up for themselves and things like that. But in this, in Hell or High Water, where the whole theme is that these banks are <laughs> ruining these communities and the town people would show up and just for the hell of it, defend the bank and try to shoot the heroes where in the remake of 310 to Yuma, he's got the townspeople turning against the heroes for a little bit of money. And I thought, that's it. That's much more, that's much better, much. I buy that a lot more. And I think it's uh, keeps with, the themes a lot better than uh, the other. I was going to say, Mike, it is true with the amount of movies that we've talked about beyond 310 to Yuma. <laughs> I'm sorry for all the spoilers. If you haven't watched the last hundred years of cinema, we have talked about all the movies on this episode. <laughs> yes. Yes. I knew we were going to get into a lot more than just the two, three tenths to Yuma and uh, Arctic blue on this one. Most definitely. So. Yeah, most Fair definitely. warning. It's good though. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. It's the Johnny Guitar. He says he has an appointment with you. I'll see him late. There'll be plenty going on here soon. Tell me, why did you pick this spot to do? How could you possibly know that the railroad was coming this way? Some time ago, I ran into your surveyor, and we exchanged confidences. Come on down, Vienna. 
Take a good look. We want the dancing kidneys bunch. You're one of them. Someone holds up the stagecoach. Your brother is killed, and all you can think about is hanging the dancing kid. You know he didn't do it. We're taking you and your men into custody. Eddie. You can stop spinning the wheel. We don't want you here. I saw the stage being held. What? Well, why didn't you ride down and help him? With what? This? Listen, good, because I'm only going to say this once. In 24 hours, I'm passing a law against gambling and drinking any place outside the town limits. You got no call asking us to leave. I'm not asking, I'm telling you. If you're smart, you'll ride out of here and you won't come back. That's what I should do. Mr. Guitar? Yes, ma'am? Still want the job? Fooling with a strange woman can bring a man a lot of grief. You a strange woman? Only to strangers. What's going on with you two? Stick to your dancing, kid. You'll live longer. Like the one they call Johnny Guitar. Down there, I sell whiskey and cards. All you can buy up these stairs is a bullet in the head. Play it again, Johnny That's right. Speaking of uh, homoerotic overtones, we're going to be back next week looking at Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Rob and Jedediah. So, Jedediah, what's been going on with you since last we spoke? Watching more movies, and in fact, I'll give you a link. You can have to another podcast I did a few months ago about Elmore Leonard Westerns, so I'll send that along. And Rob, how about you? What's the latest with you, sir? I left uh, the Midwest for the climates of the Southwest. I'm enjoying the land of enchantment. And no, I'm not cooking the blue meth just yet. So that gives you an idea of where I'm at. Beyond that, I'm doing well. Enjoying my gig out here for what I do. And glad to be back on the show. And looking forward to having a little more time to watch movies now that I'm done with my three solid straight years of education. And I did learn to read, as you heard on this episode so i did read that short story which is amazing it's always fun to come on and talk with you and good to see jedediah again and looking forward to the next time sir you think you're pretty smart now don't you college boy huh yeah as a matter of fact the people who have my loans think that i am too and hope that i make enough money otherwise i may have to run some guy to yuma on a train in order to pay off the loans so we'll see well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. On the 310 to Yuma That's where I saw my love The girl with the golden hair Not a word between us was spoken 
Though the silence never was broken But before she left Her eyes said a sad goodbye Tend to you, my leaves. If I have the fear. 